It's Friday, Friday. Gotta get down on Friday. Gotta make a show for Marcello Poblete Alarcon, Daniel Berg, Jeffrey Arbo, Eric Taylor, Tenzel Kim, Steve Jukes, Alexander, Alexander Almeida, Eric Anderson, Callum McCauley, Kirby McCauley, Collie McCurby, Callum McCallum, Collie McCallum, Kevin Hall, Sean Kraus, and George White. Some of you may be imaginary, and at least one of you is from the future, but this one goes out to you. Major Spoilers theme song! The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Pod- on, on the air. The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. On the air. Pod, pod, podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen. If you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, 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 The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Everyone, welcome to issue 486 of the Major Spoilers Podcast. Hello! Rodrigo is still on vacation, and young Zach is oh, out no! partying it up, as young kids do. Hi, my name is Zach! We actually shot a bunch of video stuff yesterday. You shot what? A bunch of video stuff. I thought stuff. you were going to say, we accidentally shot Zach. <laughs> <laughs> we actually did. Excellent, excellent. We may shoot Zach tomorrow, I don't know. He's going to make up uh, an incomplete in one of my classes, so I'm making him shoot a bunch uh. of stuff and edit it and do all the fancy stuff to it. Yeah, that'll teach him. Well, it just means to that, walk around. Yeah, with his hair and his gangly stuff. The manager. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it is a Q and A episode. That means we're going to read questions and give you answers, such as uh, this one. This uh, listener call in from Slappy. Hello there, gentlemen. This is Slappy once again, but this time I do wish to speak about The Hobbit as opposed to speaking about The Hobbit previously. But I don't really want to speak about The Hobbit, the movie per se, but what I would like to speak about is something that I saw at the end credits of The Hobbit, and this could be saved for some other show when you do answer questions. My question is as follows. Rotoscoping. My understanding of rotoscoping was when you would take some sort of film and essentially kind of color over like Bakshi did in uh, the previous uh, Lord of the Rings movie when he took, I believe it was Alexander Nevsky from the Soviet Union uh, era, and he used that for the battle scenes itself in the uh, Lord of the Rings with the orcs and the men. Now, my real question is, at the end of Lord, uh, the Hobbit film, I saw wonderful Andy Serkis was the second unit director at different points, but then I also saw something on rotoscoping, and I do not really recall seeing any sort of rotoscoping throughout the film. So in a modern sense, what is rotoscoping? Thank you very much, gentlemen. All right, Slappy wants to know about rotoscoping. Rotoscoping, you know, the rotoscoping has gone through a lot of different things. If you remember the old uh, Max Fleischer Superman cartoons and in The Hobbit that uh, Slappy's referring to, yes, you actually trace over... Um, live live actors and you make that right. your animation rotoscoping really is anytime you are um drawing around or tracing around something on the screen in this case rotoscoping for the hobbit is we are rotoscoping out actors against a background so we could put in a matte painting or something like that um, but it is a frame by frame drawing it doesn't necessarily have to do with animation in fact i just spent a good portion of my uh of my day 
uh, doing some rotoscope work inside of Adobe After Effects where I'm animating masks uh, around a, a car as He's it's driving down the street. Path. So uh, it can really be anything. But today in a digital world, it's not necessarily an animation gimmick where you're drive, drawing over live action. It is just, you know, drawing or tracing around anything or masking around anything fr- on a frame by frame basis. And that's kind of the key thing is a frame by frame basis. And one of my very, very favorite animated sequences of all time, uh, aside from being pervy as all heck, is really beautifully rotoscoped. And that's uh, when Tarna changes clothes in the final segment of Heavy Metal. Oh, man. Where you see, yeah, where they rotoscope that beautiful model with the amazing backside. That's a great sequence. I mean, it's a little embarrassing and a little fan servicey, but it's a great sequence. It's beautifully rendered. And, you know, you're never going to see a better cartoon body than you see on that particular woman. Um, I, I may have a, a contention for that. Um, really? Yeah. First of all, I'm not going to run around with my dork hanging out. But second, I watched Starship Troopers Invasion on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Uh-huh. Christmas Eve? No, Christmas Eve is when it was. Got all my Christmas Eve presents day. wrapped. Christmas Eve day. day. Eve. And I thought, well, I've got some time. It's only 10 o'clock. I can watch a, a movie or something. And I said, well, I haven't watched this Starship Troopers Invasion and I sure hope Casper Van Dien isn't listening because I know he's a friend of ours on uh, on the Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, and I didn't realize. I guess I didn't realize that this was a full 3D animated piece. And I was like, okay, I'm fine that it's 3D animation. That's no big deal. Uh, it makes it a lot easier to do the bugs and the bloods and the guts. And of course, you don't have to worry about too much uh, animation when the when the troopers are all in their full body armor. They look like Halo characters running around. But then all of a sudden, boom! Naked ladies running around the screen. <laughs> And I was like, okay. And I, you know, in, in, uh, in the movie, the live action movie, the men and women shower together and it's no big deal. And there's plenty of, of boobies that you see, uh, in the, there's a lot of naked people. Um, but I just didn't expect it in a 3d animated movie. And then suddenly, boom, there's, uh, there's naked women. So. Dying old naked chicks, mine today. And I got worldwide web. Yeah, boy, I tell you what. Yeah, I tell you what. Oh, so we're talking about movies. That brings us to another question from Pierce. Hi, guys. Pierce calling from Vancouver, Canada. I just had a quick question actually about documentaries about comics. Um, I know that you had reviewed a while ago, years ago, uh, DC history, uh, history of DC uh, DVD. But I just finished watching comic book superheroes unmasked by the hist- uh, aired on the History Channel. Just watch it on YouTube. Um, so it had me thinking if you guys had any specific documentaries that you would recommend or ones that you found to uh, be particularly well done. Um, all right. Thanks. Bye. Okay. So Pierce wanted to know about documentaries about comics. And um, Comic Book Confidential is like, I don't know, almost a decade old now, I think. Yeah. Or more. It's been a while. I think they're coming out with a 10th or 20th anniversary. I remember seeing it in the most recent a previews issue that they're re-releasing it for an anniversary. But a couple mm. other comic book documentaries that you might want to watch is comic book superheroes unmasked, of course. Um, and then there's a, there's a book called superhero or not a book, a movie called superheroes. It's a documentary about real people who dress up and go and patrol and fight crime. You know, uh, that guy out of, uh, where's he at Washington or Oregon? Yeah, but that's not about comics. No, but if you're looking for comic book superhero related type stuff, um, superheroes is a documentary on people who 
have grown up reading the comic books or seeing the movies and want to emulate those uh, and those want people to engage in illegal and probably dangerous behavior. Uh, it's not really I, illegal I because they're not really being vigilantes. They're going there and reporting. I don't know. Contacting the police, working with police. Uh, it's it's no worse than uh, neighborhood watch type people. But you might want to go check that one out. Um, there's one that came out, and these these next three movies came out within the last year. Um, well, comic book confidential, obviously. Uh, with great power, the Stan Lee story. Uh, that came out just, I want to say, within the last six months is when it came out. Uh, it's not too bad. I was hoping for more. Here is the history of Stan Lee, but it's more kind of a retrospective of a lot of other people talking about Stan Lee and his life. Yeah. Uh, there's some good interview moments in there. Um, you can get that. On, I think it's on Netflix. Uh, so if you got that documentary, wasn't there a documentary on Will Eisner? Hmm. There might have been. Um, could have sworn there was. Yeah, you look that up. Remember. You look that up, and I'll talk about this next one. And you can tell me about the Will Eisner one. You look it up and see if it's out there. Uh, the other one is okay. Comic Con episode uh, four, A Fan's Hope, which is I thought it was going to be really kind of gimmicky and cheesy. This is put out by the same guy who did Supersize Me, um, Morgan Spurlock. Morgan Spurlock. Yeah, yeah. and it's um, I think Kevin Smith helped underwrite it, and certainly Stan Lee helped underwrite it. Uh, but it follows a group of people, very diverse group of people, all going to the San Diego Comic-Con. One guy is an aspiring artist. And so he's going and he wants to, um, he works at a bar and, and just has all these high hopes about being the next great artist. And he goes and just has a, a time. I won't give away any of their, any of their uh, results. Another guy is in the military and he wants to draw. And so he goes and has artist hopes. Uh, there's a group of cosplayers that go, uh, which is interesting to see their side. Uh, we follow the uh, owner of Mile High Comics. As he goes out to San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah, and we see whether he makes, um, he's able to make a living selling comics at a comic book convention. Uh, it's really fascinating. I, I thought it was just going to be real cheesy, uh, but it was really good. And it's got a lot of well-known celebrities, Kevin Smith, J.J. Um, Abrams, um, Joss Whedon. A bunch of people appear in this uh, doing interviews, talking about why they love comics, why they love the San Diego Comic-Con, why they think that this kind of a of a gathering is kind of neat. So uh, you might want to go check out Comic-Con episode four, A Fan's Hope. It's not necessarily about comic books uh, per se, but it is about a specific element of the comic book industry. So I would recommend that. What'd you find out about Will Eisner? Will Eisner colon portrait of a sequential artist came out in 2007. Oh, okay. It's about Will Eisner. Have you seen it? No, I have... (sighs) You have to understand my perspective on comic books. A lot of the things that people look at when they're talking about these documentaries are not, to me, the most fascinating parts of it. It's not about how did they do something or what happened in the 40s. It's about how are people perceived and what happens when you go to a comic book convention and who are the nerds that read this stuff. Mm -hmm. And to me, a lot of it feels like an extension of the old pow biff comics aren't for kids anymore that shows up in, you know every five or 10 years in our youth in the local newspaper. So I don't necessarily want to see a documentary about the comic book industry. I'd like to see a documentary about the history of comic books and the people involved, but I'd also like to see one that doesn't have, you know, a clear narrative or a clear expectation that 
X person is the good guy and X person is the bad guy. And the ones that I've seen tend to have kind of a perspective. Well, yeah, and that, that tends to happen. I think Comic Book Confidential is probably probably the most honest, although I think it would be fascinating to... I, it's unfortunate that you know publishers have a, such a tight rein on their creators to where they can't have a frank and honest discussion. You know, because I think it would be fascinating to interview Dan DiDio and Jim Lee, Gail Simone. I mean, just everybody that was involved with the New 52 and just go from, you know, go from inception to deployment to reactions to firing people and talk to people that they had to let go. Rob Liefeld leaving uh, quite abruptly, Chris Roberson leaving abruptly, some of the new talent that came up, Scott Snyder uh, coming up, uh, talk to Jeff Johns about the, you know, the whole change in, in DC. I think that'd be fascinating, but unfortunately you're going to have a PR person, as is often the case, you have a PR person, person sitting in the room with you. And anytime something is said that puts the company in bad light, you're told, no, 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 you can't use that or take that out or you, th- yeah. this interview's over. And so it becomes very yeah. difficult. And I know that writers, some writers uh, are very open about their opinions and still get a lot of work with the companies. But so many times um, yeah. it is, it is impossible to get the straight story. So when you're looking at documentaries, every documentary is going to be colored Matthew, because there's a bias by the director 100%. going in on that piece. Um, even well, even even Ken to, Burns uh, has a bias whenever you watch his his stuff. As much as he says there's not, there clearly is a bias in his pieces. Oh, stop giving me your basic intro to broadcasting. <laughs> I took that class with you, but I have you know I have an expectation. I don't expect and and you know honestly I don't believe that there is a really unbiased perspective. But like uh, that book, Marvel: The Untold Story, right? I expect that you don't see creators tweeting. Like I saw when that book came out, hey, I read this book and there are stories in there about me that aren't actually true. Why didn't you source me? You know, when when you have professionals saying that this stuff is not true or if you have somebody who like, for instance, there's uh, the search for Steve Ditko, I felt was an okay one. But there's one about Jack Kirby that seemed to be from the perspective of Stan Lee didn't have any input on the old school Marvel comics. It's all Kirby. Kirby's a genius. I believe Kirby's a genius. But you can't say Stan Lee had no input any more than Stan Lee could say Jack Kirby had no input. So I just feel like, you know, if I were going to do a documentary and God help me, if I ever do, just shoot me in the face. I I think it would be something where when it comes to documentaries, I'm looking for a point of view that most people don't actually have. Cause I want to know, like uh, when Michael Chabon wrote, uh, what was it? The, the thing about uh, Cavalier and clay, the adventures of Mm -hmm. Cavalier and clay. Mm -hmm. And he had those thinly disguised renditions of the guys in the Eisner Iger studio. Right. You had a guy who was clearly Jack Kirby and a guy who was clearly Lou fine and telling these stories, these anecdotes in context, that are about Lou Fine when you're talking about Lewis Sharp or whoever the you know character analog was. That to me is fascinating. That's what I want to know. You know, not to the point where I want to know what sort of pencil did uh, Jack Kirby use when he created the X Men. Well, I don't think but you have that some, in a document. I want some. Well, spend, I've spend, seen it. Spend some time and uh, watch some more of those Ken Burns ones. They're really good. I don't wanna. They're really really good. I just finished I up. I don't want to look. It's at only a two-part. Hands of sepia tone footage. It, it's only a. It's only a two-parter. But I just finished up his Dust Bowl, one, and it was really good, really, really good. Yeah. I enjoyed that a lot. And they actually have a lot of uh, 
a lot of film footage that you you know normally is stuff you don't have very much film footage. Jazz, I think you have a few. Baseball, obviously, you have a lot of film. But when you go back and you do the uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, the there's Civil not much Frank Lloyd Wright stuff. Civil War, same way. Um, I don't know if we answered this one or not. This is from uh, Michael McDaniel asking about Miracle Man. He sold his Miracle Man collection. Issues 9, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 23, 24. It includes two copies of number 14. For my mind, he sold it for $220. Number 17 had a bend in it. He also threw in Preacher with the sale. It was in so-so shape, Preacher number one. However, the rest were in excellent condition. However, not comic graded, not graded by the uh, CGC. So one can go onto eBay, Amazon, and get whatever you want. However, to actually sell these items for a decent amount of money is another thing entirely. Now, I know I wasn't given 100% true value. For number 15 alone, I was offered $90. However, I wanted to sell them all. So an additional $130 for the remaining issues put it at $220. In this market where everyone is seemingly dumping their collections, what do you think of him selling selling his Miracle Man issue for two, a series for $220? He got a good deal. Um, the thing about the price guides that most people don't realize is these are your retail prices. It's just like Pawn Stars. Rick's not going to give you $2,000 for an item that's worth $2,000. When I offloaded my Miracle Man connection, my collection, and it was 1 through 24 complete, uh, most of them in kind of a VG. I didn't have anything in really excellent shape. Um, this was two or three years ago. I got 150 bucks. So, first of all, the price of Miracle Man is dropping, albeit slowly. And there are people who, you know, still are willing to pay immense amounts of money for a miracle man number 15 or a miracle man 24 specifically Mm -hmm. but the interest in miracle man as the you know as the lawsuits continued into their third decade has really waned and i think that you got a pretty good deal i would be you know I, i would be hard pressed to give you that kind of money if you walked into gatekeeper with a run like that um the preacher number one depending on what kind of condition it was in I sold um, Showcase number 80, which was the first uh, Silver Age appearance of the Phantom Stranger, and Phantom Stranger number 1 through 8, all in very good or better. I got uh, 90 bucks out of them, I think. Mm. The market just really isn't there anymore. So what's better, to sell off a collection piece by piece, like certain issues, or to sell them off in in a lot? Like uh, Hellblazer is coming to an end here with issue 300. Is it better to sell them off one at a time or to say, hey, I've got the entire 300 issue run of Hellblazer. I'm going to offload it for. Well, there are pluses and minuses to each. If you insist that they have to take the whole lot, it won't let somebody cherry pick all the good issues and leave you with a box of crap. Right. Because a lot of what I get at work is box O crap. You know, here's. Oh, so you did get my birthday gift to you. I did. Here's Amazing Spider-Man number 286 through 297, and then we jump to 335. Right, right. right. If if you let somebody cherry-pick your collection, you may get more money for individual issues, but you probably won't clear out your collection. So if you're wanting to get rid of books, I recommend um, lots. And I recommend saying to them, you know, hey, I have Miracle Man 1 through 15, but I'm looking to get rid of this stuff as well. 
what'll you give me for this stuff to get rid of it? Also with these things you want. So if someone comes in with I a complete, so if someone comes into the store uh, and has the complete run, all 300 issues of Hellblazer, are you as a mm-hmm. store going to be more interested in that complete run? Or are you as a store going to cherry pick and say, yeah, well, or maybe you know what the best issues are and you say, Hey, I really want these 50 issues, but I'll give you a hundred bucks for the rest of them or something like that. Well, just as there are different reasons to sell books, there are different reasons to buy them. I would be interested in a run of one to 300 of Hellblazer solely because I think it would be fascinating to sell 300 books to say, here is a complete run of Hellblazer one through 300 on the eBay and, you know, stick it up there with a decent price. What's a decent price, do you think? Well, issue, let's see, issue one of Hellblazer right now. This very second, I want to say it's like a $12 book in really good shape. Mm, okay. Then there's a lot of issues that just aren't worth anything. The first Garth Ennis issue is like number 40 Fava Fav, and 40 Fava Fav is, you know, worth like eight bucks. But a lot of Hellblazer is basically, you know, 50 cent bin material, mm, things that mm-hmm. you aren't going to sell except to fans of the property. You aren't going to necessarily get a huge amount out of a Hellblazer run. I think you're averaging about four bucks a book, give or take. So 1200 bucks. You go, oh, God, no. That would be selling price. Oh, if you um, were selling it. Yeah, yeah. Right. If you were selling it as a store and you priced it accordingly, it would probably be about 1200 bucks. Here's what would actually happen. If I bought a run of one to 300, I would put it up on the internet with a reserve price of $275. I would have paid about a hundred, 150 bucks for all 300 issues. Even though there, even though there are some in there that are worth, there are some in there that are worth 10, 12, $14. And that's the thing that people don't realize, but that's the thing, but that's the thing. And we've talked about this before. People don't realize that they, they hear us talk and say, Hey, I've got all 300 issues. That's 1200 bucks. I'm going into the comic book store next week and I'm going to, Say, I'll sell you all of, all of these for 1200 bucks, and the guy won't give me but $100 for them. Well, right. that's, and that's when you we'll watch Pawn Stars, when you watch, when you watch Pawn Stars or Storage Garage or whatever the show is, they're not going to give yeah. you the retail price because they have to make a profit too. So Matthew's going to offer you a tenth of what it's worth in hopes that he can yeah. sell it for, you know, and the larger full retail. the lot the more that's going to adjust because the vast majority of Hellblazer issues cost you about three bucks and are worth about three bucks. Mm-hmm. Well, and then also the too, majority of Hellblazer issues have not gone up in value. Would you put and the ones that have aren't necessarily going to be worth the pain in the neck of having all 300. Would you put them up as one lot of 300 or would you break them down into 50 issue runs? I would try a lot of 300 right now i have a lot in my office that needs to be written up amazing or excuse me spectacular spider-man number one through 275 inclusive cool that run we're going to put up and i don't know what the boss had said he was going to put a a reserve on it and say here you can have a whole run 275 you know 35 years worth of spider-man comics or whatever it was and see who bites because those big blowout lots Mm-hmm. people want those people want to buy those yeah so if i were to buy one through 300 i would try and sell one through 300 as a lot and I, what i would honestly what i would probably do is try and find a buyer before i made an offer mm. know what that buyer is willing to pay 
and then make an offer based on the contingency of knowing what my, you know, my buyer is going to pay. Yeah. Um, it's funny. People, uh, often will go back into really, really, really old episodes of the major spoilers podcast and then contact us. Here's somebody writing to us about, uh, Oh, almost 200 issues ago, almost 200 and issue nice. number 295. Hello. A long time ago. My name is Kevin Rubio. Oh. You may know me as the author of tag and bink as reviewed in part in your podcast issue number 295. Kevin Rubio, also the uh, director of, uh, uh, that hilarious troops, troops. Uh, online video. <laughs> Recently, Which I was looking funny. for a small image uh, of the characters to place on a friend's Facebook page, and I stumbled across your site through Google. I wanted to thank you for your kind words and offer a bit of insight, not only as to the two issues reviewed, but the issues The Return of Tag and Bink, Special Edition, and Tag and Bink Episode 1, Revenge of the Clone Menace. First two episodes were in fact rushed, but this was through no fault of Dark Horse. I procrastinate a lot, and I was turning in stuff at the last minute. Dark Horse came to me to do a series of short stories in the Star Wars Tales line when they saw troops. Based on the success of those shorts, I was asked uh, by them and Lucasfilm to come up with an original series. They really wanted a troops comic, but I split the difference and gave them guys pretending to be stormtroopers. I initially pitched three episodes to coincide with the first three films. Budget cut shortened it to two. Same thing happened for the second round of stories. I pitched four comics, one for Jedi and three for the first three episodes. Budgets again shortened them into two. Um, the stormtroopers in Tag and Bink are clones. I even had a scene revealing that, that fact, but Lucasfilm and Dark Horse asked that it be cut because the comic would be out before Attack of the Clones, and that they, they did not want to ruin the secret. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um. Mm. Presently, he's writing Ben 10 Omniverse, My Little Pony, for which I was nominated for an Emmy, Green Lantern, the animated series, and I'm working on some internet projects with companies that I'm not at liberty to name at present. And then he uh, sent us the uh, outlines for Tag and Bink for us to oh, read. Oh, nice. So it's nice to have. Uh, I, I really like Kevin Rubio's work. In fact, I think I tried contacting him I at one too. point, and he may have written before, which is why I thought that we'd read this before, but I had not marked it as read. But if we did read it before, there you go. It is again. Uh. Let's see. Greetings, Major Spoilers Podcast. I'm one of those Doctor Who fans who actually favors the expanded universe over the actual show, though Matt Smith is almost as good as the manipulative Seventh Doctor from the Virgin New Adventures. Yeah, I'll um, buy that. Let's see. I have somewhat reluctantly gotten into Batman after reading the deluxe editions of Year One and Incorporated, though Incorporated did completely lose me towards the end. That's okay. It lost everybody. Since I really don't want to become a Batman <laughs> fan, because frankly, Doctor Who and Nightwatch centered Discworld books tackle those issues of becoming a symbol for justice and walking the line between the hero and the master better. I was wondering if you could recommend good jumping on points for other heroes like Sam Vines, the 7th and 11th Doctors, and a lesser extent Batman, uh, walk the like between quirky, whimsical trickster heroes and manipulative anti-heroes who spent almost too long fighting monsters and staring into the abyss and will sacrifice their best friends or commit genocide for the greater good. That's kind of a long for other heroes yeah, a, who are like Sam that's Vines. I see. So, you know what I really liked? I like that. Was it a 12 issue run of Thor that uh, Straczynski did when they brought Thor back and uh, Asgard was hovering over Oklahoma? Was that a 12? It was like yeah. four or five years ago. Oh, it was. It was. Yeah, it was uh, 12 or 13. He kind of quit on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I th I yeah, think because they were trying to force, they were trying to force, uh, was it Civil War into oh, I it? I forget know. what, what part it was, but I they were trying to force something in there. I just remember that he did. But those first 12 issues I thought are really good. Um, 
man. I don't know, man. That's that's, that's a pretty a, tough that's question. A mighty, that's a mighty specific category. I would need to actually do some uh, framistatting. I, I think maybe you know, All-Star think. Superman has its moments. Um, no, not as far as calculating. I found that All-Star Superman portrayal to be more of a Silver Age paternal kind of Superman. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... I don't know. I mean, I'd really have to think about it. I would say Hellblazer, definitely, especially in the uh, Garth Ennis run, where he sells his soul to three different devils because he has uh, lung cancer, and then plays three different factions against each other. That was pretty cool. The uh, That second but, absolute volume of Sandman is pretty good. Yeah, but Sandman necessarily, I mean, it, you're, those characters are in there, but they're not the central character. Yeah. The central character kind of gets wiped up in that, and his, his sister actually is the one who Death. plays that that role is that death or is that somebody else uh desire his oh, sister okay. slash brother okay well speaking on jumping jumping on points speaking of jumping on points listen to this comment from jimmy hey major spoilers crew this is writer jimmy here and i was reading my dc comics this week and i noticed in the back of each issue they have a dc comics graphic novel gift guide and i thought to myself wow that's a great idea, a good way for them to promote some of their own books, you know, help people uh, pick out gifts. But I was reading the captions on some of the books, and here's, here's one of them. Watchmen, the graphic novel by legendary writer Alan Moore and artist Dave Gibbons, and the quintessential read for those looking to take their first trek into the world of comics. Now, the same thing that stood out to me probably stands out to you. Watchmen does not seem like the quintessential read for people looking to take their first trek into the world of comics. In fact, that's the last thing that I would suggest to people as their first comic, since it's a deconstruction of comics. Now, I know you guys have talked about this half a dozen times, but I don't think you've talked about it in a while, and I just thought that might be a fun topic for a weekend-type episode, so uh, feel free to discuss. Thanks. Bye. So, good question, Jimmy. Uh, is Watchmen a good first step for new comic readers. No. <laughs> uh, that according to no. the back of DC comics, I guess it depends. You know, no. there's so much stuff going on in Watchmen that it is too heavy to just really just pick up and casually read. If you number one, Watchmen. have never read a comic book before. And if you've never read superheroes before, but you know, there were what 3 million trades sold of Watchmen following the release of the Watchmen trailer. So you know that Watchmen had to be a jumping on point for a lot of people. Watchmen is not, repeat, not a good entryway to comics because Watchmen is completely atypical as a comic. Watchmen plays with bits of structure that most comics aren't aware of. The nine-panel grid is intrinsic to Watchmen, and it's there as a specific restriction by the writer right. to see if he can do the story and do it. I mean, so much of that book is based on deconstructing heavy-duty in-depth tropes. You know, the uh, everybody, I think, kind of gets the Janie as uh, the Lois Lane thing, but then they break it down even further where John Osterman, the Superman slash Captain Adam slash, you know, giant archetype also has a sidekick and an evil nemesis. But it turns out that this is a very realistic take where none of them are exactly what they seem. I mean, yeah, if you go through and that's your first comic book and you buy more comics, 
I think you could get into comics. It is not a good jumping on point as an introduction to comics because it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to set up really high expectations and have you going, well, this was not as good as Watchmen. Mm -hmm. Or it's going to be something where you go through and go, God, this is dense. Why is this so dense? Are all comics like this? I don't want to read comics. I don't know. You know, they're all this dense. Like I said, there's you can read that book just on the surface. Or you could go into it and say, wow, this is really deep. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, it certainly wouldn't, it certainly wouldn't be, it certainly wouldn't be the book that I would recommend to most people starting out. That's for sure. It's a good book. I would give them Dark it's Knight Returns before I gave to them Watchmen. To try and convince them they should love comics. Right. Well, I, like I said, I would uh, give them, it's a great story. I would give them Dark Knight Returns before Watchmen. Um, but even then, Dark Knight Returns has the expectation that you know who the Joker and Two-Face are. Uh, and, and you know, now I think maybe most people know who Batman is, but I mean, you have to have a lot of knowledge uh, about Batman. Eight-year-olds, five-year-olds know Batman. Speaking Batman of Batman. Is Bruce Wayne. Have you been reading any of uh, Batman Death of the Family? Uh, I don't read any Bat titles that don't have female protagonists. All right. Uh, love the so, pad- podcast, yeah. says Troy. Joker has his face mo- removed for some random reason. His face is kept hidden, then stolen by an unseen individual. Joker shows up out of the blue, not wearing his normal Joker costume, and he's crazier than usual. Why? Here's his theory, Troy's theory. What if it isn't the Joker, but an imposter wearing the Joker's face? Someone like Hush or James Gordon Jr. has the means and motivation to pull this off. Hush steals Joker's face since he had the surgery to look like Bruce. James has almost the same build as the Joker. Even Harley Quinn doesn't think this is her normal Joker. Why would Joker cut his face off, then have it duct tape back on? Even the Joker, even for the Joker, the motivation seems to be random. Uh, And this was written back in 1st of December. The story unfolds. Batman stops him. Maybe someone close to Batman almost dies. None will die since they all have their own books. Then out of nowhere, Joker shows up with his face off. And the Joker and uh, with the Joker imposter and kills him. Joker reclaims his face and yells in the oh so sweet, awesome Mark Hamill voice. So long, Batsy. Boom. A story is over. What do you think? Says Troy. That is not a bad theory, especially if you've read the solicitations for what is it? Batgirl number 15. Which basically has Barbara Gordon. It says right in the solicitation. Barbara Gordon uh, has to deal with James Gordon in this uh, wrap up of uh, death in the family, death of the family. Oh yeah, it has something along I that line. So, I I don't think it works with the beginning of the story that they told. Well, you know, the first and, place and that the he attacked, PCU, the first place the Joker attacked was the police station where James Gordon is the commissioner. Well, the main reason why they've done this is to give us a shocking new Joker for this shocking new universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it is. I don't know. We'll see if that plays out, Troy. I think you may be on the right track. Uh, John Gotchchak uh, writes in and says, here are some ju- suggestions um, for us to read. King City. Have you finished that? Have you read that? Do you know that? I don't know what that is. I don't know what it is right now. Uh, Profit. Put it on the list. Prophet. Oh. The new Prophet? Yes. The non-Rob Liefeld, inspired by Rob Liefeld. And this is uh, Brandon Graham that he's referring to. Multiple Warheads is only on its second issue, but also worth picking up. Okay. Uh, We also had a phone call. I'm not going to play because it was really hard to hear and hard to understand. 
But do we have any thoughts on Punisher Max? I do. I think it's good that they put an ending on the Punisher that makes sense. And by that, I mean the Punisher dies. And gets turned into Frankenstein? Should. No. (laughs) They ended, Garth Ennis did that whole Punisher Max run, which was Punisher supposed to be set in a more realistic universe. And at the end of it, Punisher Max, Max Punisher, the alternate universe, croaked died Mm -hmm. oh he's dead oh because it's the only but but punisher max punisher max isn't set in the 616 marvel universe it's a different universe isn't it? it's a max title yeah 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 Yeah, it's a max title i I remember reading uh i think i read the first issue of that there's a lot of a lot of uh Um, violence gore boobies it's very adult i don't maybe we'll have to read that well no it's it's violent and and sexual, but I wouldn't necessarily call it adult. Um, <laughs> comics for adults is not the same as adult comics, but that's an argument for another time. I liked a lot of the Punisher Max stories that they were telling. Mm-hmm. The um, Welcome Back Frank was a really good story, and I liked bits and pieces of some of these things where you know you have things, and I want to say actually. Um, there's an issue in Civil War where Iron Man is talking about the Punisher. And he's like, it's like he exists in two separate worlds, <laughs> he said, hinting broadly. But I wonder if that's on the... Uh... Uh, Barracuda was a fun character. I liked Barracuda. Uh, basically, it was a villain who was Michael Clark Duncan, which right. is kind of cool. But I think that the Punisher Max served its purpose. And Punisher Max, to me, was kind of... Punisher for the post 9-11 universe. Mm-hmm. Punisher set in a world where things were more realistic and the Punisher was taking out his aggressions on people who we wanted to see aggressions taken out on. We want to see, you know, rapists and murderers and child enslavers and terrorists and jackwagons blowed up by, you know, a crazy Vietnam vet with a slick back haircut. But yeah, when they ended the Punisher Max and they did the whole thing where they killed the Punisher, or at least I think that's what they did, I kind of thought that was appropriate, and I liked that. Yeah, the, that is not on Comixology, so it may be a little while before we got to that. They have Punisher Volume 8, well, Volume they, 9, 5, Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe, Punisher Noir, Punisher Frankencastle, Punisher in the Blood, Punisher Warzone. Is the regular. Yeah. The thing about the Max imprint is there was never a, a real definition of what a Max yeah, comic yeah, yeah. was. Because Moon Knight was in that for a while, inspiring. right? Wasn't it Moon Knight was also in that line? Did I they don't have a believe so. did they I don't believe did, Moon Knight was. Did they have a Spider Man Max? Probably I don't not. I think so. They did a they did a Fury Max. Oh maybe that's a- awful. And they did US War Machine, which Oh my god. One of the most unnecessary and ridiculous comic concepts ever. They did have an interesting take on the fool killer, I guess. And the Luke Cage limited series where he was uh, super pimpy yeah. from around 2012, 2002-ish. That was one. Yeah. Um, do you remember Alias with uh, Luke Cage's girlfriend saying the F word every five minutes? I remember the Alias series, but okay. Um, another recommendation. While, I think they had the Squadron Supreme. Milwaukee from the forums uh, called in again. A little hard to hear. 
but made a recommendation for pa- Patsy Walker Hellcat. Is it Patsy Walker Hellcat? Is that the series? You re- you reviewed that on the yeah, site, I thought. Issues. Yeah. Didn't you yeah, review those? Good series. So, yeah. So, those are already up on the series. I don't Catherine Stewart Eminent. Yeah. Well, I believe that some of those fell into a point in time where I was doing rapid fire reviews. Oh, okay. So, they didn't get like a full scale flippy dibby. Hmm, a flippy dibby. But I don't see why. Yeah, we why can put that on the list. Just chuck it online. I was listening to your recent weekend show, says Reed. This is written the first of December. Hi, Reed. And listening to you all discuss sexual representation in pop culture, I was wondering if you've heard of the game Skullgirls. Came out earlier this year as a download on the Xbox and the PS3. And why I, while I normally don't play fighting games, I highly, highly recommend this one. All of the player playable characters are female, and while many of them are very sexy, many defy or mock common conventions, and conceptually each is very interesting. I've heard several game podcasts talk about this game, and as the host who plays the most video games, I thought you should check that out. Have you heard about this? I guess this was sent to Rodrigo. Skullgirls.com. Been. Um, no, never heard of it before right now. I'm on the site. I'm playing the trailer. Maybe I better turn down the volume. Blood, partial nudity, violence, and use of tobacco. Ooh. Gives it a teen, a T for teen rating. Is this anything like Sucker Punch? Uh, I don't know. The, uh, the trailer is very interesting. Oh, it looks very, it looks very, um, manga-ish, anime-ish character designs. I figured it would with a name like Skullgirls. I played Rumble Roses. What is that that game? No. Rumble Rumble Roses was basically a, uh, a wrestling game with an all-female cast, but each one had a heel and a face costume and persona. Hmm. So you could take your character and turn her heel. It was, you know, it was interesting. I see. So no, we have not read or seen. Maybe Rodrigo has, and we'll let us know in the future. Please and thank you, says Kiera Newland. Newland, yes. I love your podcast. Started with Critical Hit. Now I'm on to major spoilers. It's all great. I was interested in your discussion at the end of your most recent show about uh, edict and how to act politely around other people. This brought a question to my mind. How do you feel about females opening a door for you? I'm a female, and as a general kindness, I often open the doors for people, maybe at work or a store or anything. More times than not, if I open the door for a male, he will not walk through. I personally find this a little offensive and to be extreme sexist. He won't walk through the door just because a girl is holding it. Odd. How do you react? Hmm. How do you react, Matthew, if a girl holds the door open for you? I don't care. Yeah, I guess I don't, I don't care either. It necessarily makes any difference to me. I actually probably, if I were to think about it, would think it was kind of nice. Yeah. I guess uh, all the places I go to have automatic doors that open, so there's never a question. Walmart, McDonald's. Oh, <laughs> uh, also, a comic book question. Who's your favorite obscure comic book character? I am a fan of Ragamuffin from Lenore the Cute Little Dead Girl by Ronan Dirge. Do you have a favorite obscure comic book character? I do. Who is that? Fruit Man. Oh, yeah, you did a retro review on Fruit Man. Yeah, Fruit Man, uh, in in 1966, you know, there was that whole Batman thing. And the Batman television show became basically a cultural zeitgeist. And Fruit Man came out from Harvey Comics, the people who did Baby Huey and Casper and Richie Richie. Right. But uh, Fruit Man was a backup in several of their little kiddie books 
uh, like Gogo and things, and they finally collected them. But Fruit Man basically was this uh, fruit seller who could had the superpower to turn into any fruit. I don't know if that means he could turn into a tomato. I think we should have that issue. Uh, his villain, his Venom character can be the dark tomato. No, the ultimato. Yeah. But yeah, I would say that Fruit Man is probably my favorite. Either Fruit Man or the Music Meister. The Music, music Master, forgive me. Master. From the Music a- Master was a Golden Age hero uh, whose regular, whose uh, civilian identity was, and I am crapping you negative on this, Chauncey Throttlebottom. The wizard isn't on your list. <laughs> Chauncey Throttlebottom the third, I, I might add. I uh the oh you had to be there. I don't know if I have a favorite obscure comic book character. I've always kind of been a been a fan of um uh, Chunk from uh, the Flash. He was a villain. He swallowed a black hole or had a black hole in, in him. He was a pseudo-villain. He was a villain, and then he turned into a hero, became one of uh, Wally West's uh, best friends. Uh, I don't know if I'd call him a a hero either. He was a powered second banana. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I guess that would be my most favorite obscure comic book character. I mean, certainly you could look at other characters that have had a resurgence in the last couple of years, Doc Savage, The Shadow, uh, as pulp characters. Um, And like I said, I was just reading the, the Shadow special that I thought was really well done. Um, but no, I don't think I have anybody that's, that's obscure. Oh, I think you do. Who? We were talking about the Green Llama a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, but he's not my favorite by far. Not, no, I don't even like the Green Llama. Oh, and boy, you no, should really, you, don't like you know, we had, who's not Batman. no, uh, you know, we had made the comment about who owns the, uh, the copyright of Green Llama and someone had popped in Green and, Llama. and people, let me go back and find this real quick. Uh, cause it was in our last dueling yeah. or two dueling reviews ago. If you go in and read yeah. the discussion, it's really, really fascinating. Cause I had to go and do, uh, some research to follow up with what this person was saying. Essentially the initial comment, um, from uh, this person. This is when we were reviewing masks. So this was issue 480? four eighty. No, not four eighty. Um, four eighty three of the major. I think it may have been our last dueling reviews. Well, we just did seven hundred for major uh, for Amazing Spider Man. So it's issue four eighty three. The person piped well, in so and said, uh, "The Green Llama isn't public domain, nor is he licensed to Dynamite," which is an obscure comment. The implication being that Dynamite is using it illegally, and that's not really what I found. Um, you know, the old comic books are in public domain, but the com- but the character itself is owned by or still owned by um, uh, Doubleday, uh, not Doubleday, Double Detective Magazines. They had the copyright renewed. The rights to the Green Llama stories were retained by Kendall Forster, who is the author of the Green Llama, uh, Kendall Forster Cor- uh, Crossan. He assigned those rights to Kendra Crossan Burroughs, who now is the... Um, let's see in the book, Will Murray's, uh, introduction to the green llama volume one, the copyright is now owned by Kendrick Crossan, literary executor of the Kindle, Fo- uh, foster Crossan estate and assigned to Argosy communications. So she's assigned that to Argosy communications and Argosy communications. The only person that they've, or the only company that they've authorized the green llama to is dynamite entertainment or dynamic forces. Mm. So it's one of those weird things where 
if they've granted the copyright to Dynamite, Dynamite may be doing it correctly, although there may be some question over Argosy's uh, purpose for being in existence, except to license the Green Llama to Dynamite Entertainment. It took me a while to go through, and I haven't even gone through all the legal, because there are some other legal things that popped up, but it's, uh, it is fascinating to go through some of these uh, obscure copyright cases and um, who owns what becomes very, very, uh, right. very sticky and messy in many places. Yep. Uh, da, 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 da. Here's a thank you. Here is a do reviews. Listening to Dueling Review on MSP number 483, the one we were just talking about, uh, made me think something to write about. It comes up quite often, what is a good jumping on point? But in today's world, where pretty much everyone has internet access within an arm's reach 24-7, why is it necessary to have a good jumping on point? Now, he says, I don't want to have to look up everything, but I can easily reference characters online to figure out who is who. I've never been a big DC fan and new Green Arrow by name. Only when I watched the new show, I just kept pausing to look it up the names. Uh, that's Black Canary, that's Merlin, so on and so forth. Do they really need to explain every detail? I know they need to explain the current plot hook so I can see what is going on, but I don't really need all the details filled in. If I have questions, I can figure it out myself. But I realize this may be just me since I don't mind spoilers at all. Mm-hmm. And this Not is from our good friend uh, Jeff Bronco. And... More importantly, and this is very, very important, recently we had a review by Cat Halo of uh, the Hobbit movie where Cat Halo said, as a movie, I thought this. Mm-hmm. And the responses, the first couple of responses were both, well, clearly you didn't read the original book because right, right, right. there's no expectation when you review a movie, a movie that you've read the original book. Right. And I think that jumping on points are a way to say to the people who feel no obligation to, you know, go and Google who Otto Octavius is before you find out that he's the new Spider-Man. Spoilers! What? But it's perfectly legitimate, and everybody has their own thing that they want to do, but it's perfectly legitimate to say, I'm not going to do that much work to get into your story. Give me a place that I can come in fresh, and I'll buy your book. You know, I can understand that. Give and take. Yeah, I can understand that. But you know, whenever we were reviewing masks, and I was like, uh, "Who's this Miss Fury or whatever her name was, Black Fury?" Uh, I had to go look it up. I was because I didn't know who the character was, and so I read a little bit of here and there, and I was like, "Yeah, that's enough to know what I need to know." Moving on. Now, if I hadn't have looked it up, could I have gotten the same enjoyment out of the issue? Yeah, probably. Just another costume person uh, going out to uh, to fight. Um, but I kind of agree that. Maybe you don't have to spoon feed everything to readers and to listeners and to viewers because there is the internet. And if I want to go and find out what this uh, Game of Thrones is all about before I sit down and commit to two seasons of shows, I can go online and I can kind of get a general idea of what the story is about. Or if I have a question about a character, I can always go and look that up. Um. Of course, we've got Major Spoilers Dueling Reviews, which does a lot of that also, and Hero Histories, which do a lot of that also. Um, so yeah, I don't mind that the internet is right there, and and there are studies that show that there are a lot of people now who will watch TV with a computer or a, a tablet device, and they're there interacting with others during the show uh, that they're watching or looking up stuff online in reference to that show. 
So I don't know if you need every book needs to be a good jumping on point or if you do need those jumping on points, but it is, as Matthew said, you absolutely need them. Well, I was saying if you want to go by the current publishing theory, right? You, I think you do need to have every once in a while that little signpost that says, hey, new people, here's our new mm-hmm. here's our new chicken sandwich. Come try it out. Right. And there are people who don't want to read anything that they can't read from issue one. Right. And I find that to be kind of a silly thing, but that's just my perspective. My perspective is not based on their perspective. My perspective is based on something that I like to call not being silly. But it's also from the point where when I grew up, 200 and 300 issues into a book was a perfectly valid place to start reading comics because you didn't have any choice. You pick up Amazing Spider-Man 225 or you don't pick up Amazing Spider-Man QED. So I don't think that you should force people to have to look stuff like that up. But I also think that having a jumping on point every month or every three months kind of undermines the point of a jumping on point. If you have that many jumping on points, there's clearly something in your story that may not be clearly enunciated because obviously people aren't getting it. You have to keep giving them jumping on points. Yep. I can see that. Um, let's see. What else do we have? Whoops. I closed down that screen. No, that was the last email question. He has Patrick Duffy for a leg. (laughs) Uh, I told you he was real. Question from Jason on Twitter. Will Matthew ever come to Major Spoilers HQ to record? Probably not. Well, I never say never. Yeah, I would never say never, but, uh, Matthew tends to work during the The week and we record during the week. The Matthew... The Matthew has to drive. He does remotely is that Stephen realizes that Matthew is a draw. Matthew can't (laughs) afford. There was a time, there was a time folks when major spoilers was just Stephen and Matthew in different basements. You may not remember that time, but we do. And by God, it was stressful. And there was a time when major spoilers was just Stephen without Matthew. That's true. And that it was is glorious. Very true. But I don't remember that time, so I don't give a rat's ass. Any, I, any the ideas? The main reason that I don't. It's too far. Is, it's not because I don't want to. It's that it is literally 222 miles from my doorstep to yours. Yeah. And there, it, this is not going to sound awful as awful. I don't mean it to sound as awful. There is no reason other than y'all for me to go to Hayes, Kansas. It's not like I'm going to Hayes, Kansas to buy comic books that I can't get here or traveling there for business or, you know, going to Hayes. No, there's really no, there's no reason to come to Hayes. Yeah, we want to take Molly to Sternberg at one point. We want the midget to see the dinosaur that goes. Yeah, doesn't even do that anymore. It just kind of goes. Well, we want to take her to Sternberg anyway, so I can explain to her how Daddy used to work on the third floor of this museum. When when they have a uh, when they have a really good the next big dinosaur exhibit, they just finished up one that was really pretty cool, and had us on the verge of buying a lifetime membership. Um, Mm -hmm. But the next time they have a really good dinosaur exhibit, you should come out because it is really kind of neat to see a good dinosaur exhibit. But I think right now they have a the exhibit is like moths or something like that. And, you know, that's really exciting. The main reason that I don't is it's not necessary. There's nothing out here. For all the trouble we have had in recording MSP and Critical Hit and Top 5, for all the pains in the neck that Steven has had fixing my audio levels after I poured a quart of water into my keyboard, for all of the 
moments that you guys don't get to hear where Steven and I yell at each other viciously and one of us hangs up the phone and goes, I think that it would have been infinitely worse if I had been spending time and money to make the six hour round trip and then come back. Because Especially when we, when we record critical hit, it's in big blocks. It's like six oh yeah. hour blocks. Oh yeah. And it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't get done until th- three in the morning. And so to ask Matthew to pack it up yeah. right at three in the morning and drive back to Topeka is, uh, and I have three jobs. When I say that I have three jobs, counting major spoilers, I am not kidding. I have a day job and I have something that I do because I care about it. And I also have major spoilers. <laughs> That came out wrong. But in any case, you know, uh, pretty much every day of the week, I, I have some obligation because yeah, yeah, yeah. I tend to work Monday through Friday or at least part of them. Saturday is Molly Daddy Day. Sunday, I work at the comic store. You know, uh, Bleem's Day, of course, is full because I have to my, count up to the number slur. My big thing is always kids. I can't do out of town trip out of town trips because I have to go pick up <laughs> my kids at five o'clock during the week yeah. because uh, Cause my wife is working. She works at the hospital and doesn't get, she doesn't have regular, Hey, it's five o'clock time to go home hours. Like some people do. Right. Uh, Bruce asked the question, Bruce asked the question. Did you know you can watch some episodes of classic doctor who for no extra charge? If you have Amazon prime, I'd ask people to send in questions via Twitter. I don't know if those were the kind of questions we were looking for, but very cool. I do have Amazon prime. I will look into that. Thank you, Bruce. I do too. And there are also a few, the last time I checked, at least a few, including Curse of Fenric, were still available on the Netflix, presuming that Netflix is back up after their outage. Yeah, they were outage. They, they, they're back up to, uh, they were back up on the 26th. They were out, what the, no, they Plus, were out Christmas Eve, I just so they were back up 25th. On my Twitter that says, did you know that if you take all the veins from your body and extend them end to end, you would die? <laughs> Uh, let's see. I think that's probably about it. We've got a few, uh, more comments to listen to. We've got Andreas giving his Hobbit reactions. We've got some seasons greetings and I think that's about it. So, uh, listeners, thank you so much for listening and downloading to episode four, eight, six of the major spoilers podcast. If you would head over to majorspoilers.com, check out some of our uh, fine advertisers. If you're in the mood for some headphones, might we suggest checking out tweaked audio at tweakedaudio.com? They have, uh, bunch of different headphones that you can check out. We've tried them here and listen to this. Yeah. If, the midget loved her tweaked audio headphones. Yeah, yeah. Um, I told her they were wood colored and she just stared at me. <laughs> uh, you can't get them in wood colored. You can get them in red and green and silver and metallic and all sorts of stuff at the checkout. If you use the code major at checkout, when you're checking out from tweaked like you get I one did. third off the price. Nice. Anything else? Anything else that I need to pimp? Oh, t-shirts slash loot.com. Critical hit t-shirts. Go check them out. Go check them out. A lot of people buying Randus t-shirts. I think that's that's what looks to be the top seller is the Randus Duthane t-shirt. You can get these all for For a great price. Randus is like seriously our ensemble dark horse. Yes. Plus he looks amazing. You can get these shirts, uh, in the male or female style, you can get them all the way up to size three X. And a lot of people are like, well, can we get them in four X? Can we get them in this? Can we get them in that? You can get them in black, but any other questions such as, do they ship internationally? Will they, can I get a four X size? Just contact them. Uh, slash loot guys are really great. They're really responsive when they didn't have their international, uh, 
thing active. Somebody had said, hey, how come the International isn't isn't up there? I can't get this in Mexico. I want to buy all five shirts. And I just contacted him. He said, oh, that's an error on our part. Let me fix that. And it was fixed right away. And people internationally can order. I asked for the female cut. They nice. had that right there. So I'm sure if there are some of you four and five X sized people out there and you want to get your complete line of critical hit t-shirts before the next nerdtacular taking place, I think the July 4th weekend. Um, I think that's the, the regular date five, July 5th, 6th and 7th or July 5th and 6th. Um, Dude, just contact me. I don't know what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow. Slash loot.com for all your critical hit t-shirts. Next time on major spoilers, uh, Zach will be back. I do not think, uh, Rodrigo will be back. I don't know what we're reviewing just yet, but I'm sure it will be something exciting. Why? Because we know that you love comics and we do too. And we will talk with you soon. Hey everyone. This is Tom Angelo reviewer for major spoilers. Just wanted to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas and a happy holiday season. Take care. Hi. Um, I love the show, but this is one thing that's a little bit of fun. I was going through listening to some old shows I had backlogged, and it was in uh, episode 461. Uh, Matthew was reviewing Journey into Mystery 645, and in a case of writers tricking the reader, it is, that happened. While Matthew gave a positive review to the book, which the book totally deserves, and in fact, there are more, at, Matthew talked about stopping where it said, the end. But you can flip the page, and the story goes on and breaks your heart about a million times more after that, the end. Because it becomes a case of, while that was a sad ending, oh, if only it could have ended there. I hope um, hope you guys will take, be able to go back and reevaluate that issue knowing that, or maybe even just cover, like, hopefully they've put out a trade of that, of Kid Loki's journey into mystery, because, oh man, it's great, but uh, have a great day. Hello, Mega Spoiler, this is Andreas calling from the far side of the world to wish you a happy holidays and to give you my immediate reaction to watching The Hobbit. I've been waiting for this movie for exactly 20 years now, and it was everything and a lot more than I had hoped for. They includes the spirit of the book more so than the exact manuscript. They made a perfect three-act story of a third of a book that doesn't lend itself very well to this modern storytelling to begin with. There was a few ripples, of course, mainly where some of the main characters seemed to break character to get a point across, but still, easily five out of five stars. So, happy holidays to all of you, and bless. See you. Hey guys, it's your friend Z Comics. Uh, well, I've never actually posted in the forums or anything, but uh, let's let's get back to what I was talking about. I wanted to tell you guys about um, uh, I Kill Giants. Remember when you guys did a review of that? Well, uh, apparently in Japan, now this is an old thing I want to tell you, but I need to tell you it now, I guess. Uh, Japan actually gave it the International Manga Award and will be actually uh, improving the first issue in January 2013 in the monthly Ikiki magazine on Saturday. Uh, I thought this was awesome because you guys did a cool review on it, and, well, because of you guys, I actually read the thing. It was great, by the way. Um, So, yeah, it's great that Japan's recognizing an American, and uh, it's going to get published in Japan, so maybe maybe we'll see more uh, American... Manga's uh, getting more 
interest. Anyway, so uh, love the show. Uh, talk to you guys soon, maybe. And uh, peace. If I had the X-ray vision of a Superman, I could save some bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the rack. And although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, it'd make me wait out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Away. If I was hulking green or gray, I could bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little me would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would you bag and board your comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Major spoiler, yeah, 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 yeah. What a major spoiler. Major spoilers is copyright 2012.